You're listening to the Guest Lecture Podcast. Hey everybody, I'm Stan Hoover, a counselor educator at Messiah College, and this podcast is an extension of my classroom. Each episode features a guest lecturer who's an expert on topics that my students and I are interested in, mostly related to counseling, trauma, and spirituality. Dr. Tama Bryant-Davis is a professor of psychology at Pepperdine University and directs the Culture and Trauma Research Lab, which studies the intersection of cultural context and trauma recovery. She earned her PhD from Duke University and completed her postdoc training at Harvard Medical Center. She's an expert on the cultural context of trauma, particularly child abuse, partner abuse, sexual assault, and the societal trauma of racism. Her research on violence against women has been recognized by the American Psychological Association, who named her an emerging leader in psychology. She's also served as the APA representative to the United Nations and president of the Society for the Psychology of Women. Dr. Tame is also the author of Thriving in the Wake of Trauma, a Multicultural Guide, and co-author of Womanist and Muharista Psychologies. She's published dozens of articles in top psychology journals and has contributed chapters to the Psychology of Racism and Discrimination, The Complete Guide to Mental Health for Women, and the Encyclopedia of Psychological Trauma. Dr. Tame is a talented artist who uses dance, movement, poetry, and other forms of artistic expression to help others foster emotional and spiritual well-being. She's also an ordained minister in the AME Church. Here's my interview with Dr. Tama bryant Davis. We are rolling now. Thank you so much again for doing this. I really do appreciate it. I think a a really great place uh, to start would be just sharing a little bit of your story, how you came to be doing the work that you're uh, doing and and how you came to be so passionate uh, about trauma work in particular. Oh, absolutely. So I'm Dr. Tama Bryant Davis. I'm a psychologist and My focus area is in trauma, along with being a trauma psychologist. I'm also uh, a trauma survivor, uh, multiple forms of trauma. I grew up, um, I'm African-American and grew up very involved in the church. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that I became aware of is that uh, people within our community, both in Christian communities and African-American communities, often go to their faith-based leaders for uh, mental health support, emotional support. And so my dad being a pastor, we often had people uh, calling the house or coming to see him for what I later understood was called uh, pastoral counseling or pastoral care. Um, And that's what first got me uh, to be even aware um, of the role of a counselor. And it's something that very early on I was drawn to. And I I believe along with a skill set that we can be trained in, it can also be um, a gift and a calling. Um, And so I decided to major in psychology. Um, I went to Duke University and they had a great uh, program in collaboration with the community where you could work on uh, within the community, but the university would pay your salary. And so I started working at the Rape Crisis of Durham um, as a crisis counselor. And as a crisis counselor, not only do you do the phone counseling, you also 
meet people who are in the emergency room, uh, you go to court with people, and also in terms of prevention, you provide uh, education within the school settings or community settings to let children know about like good touch, bad touch, and you know who to contact for support and for help. Um, so I ended up staying at uh, Duke University for graduate school and um, really uh, broadened my work as it relates to trauma to look at um, both interpersonal trauma, um, which would be like uh, intimate partner violence and sexual assault, uh, child abuse, also looking at medical trauma such as HIV, um, and then later uh, understanding societal trauma, um, the trauma of oppression, various forms of oppression. Um, and so that uh, has been my life's work. I now teach at Pepperdine University. Um, I'm a professor in the graduate um, school where we're training master's level and doctoral level students to uh, do this healing work. And I also have a private practice, so it's a beautiful balance. I always mm -hmm. say our classes are three hours long, so I'm used to doing a lot of talking, but then as a clinician, doing a lot of listening. Uh, and so it has been um, beautiful for me to be able to combine uh, those aspects and interests. Um, as well as uh, doing research in the area of trauma and being um, involved in policy work as well. I mean, in a lot of ways, it seems like you came to this work naturally, and it, mm -hmm. it certainly does seem like a, a calling with a lot of um, meaning and significance for you. Yes, absolutely. It's a joy. And it's funny because at first when I tell people that my focus area is trauma, they think, oh, that must be so depressing. But actually, it's inspiring. People are amazing. You know, the things that we uh, survive and, and the ways in which people live their lives that often upon meeting people, we wouldn't know their story until they tell us. Um, and so I count it as an honor uh, to be able to bear witness and to um, facilitate that, that process of healing, which uh, I have more recently started to refer to as homecoming, coming home to ourselves mm. because trauma can disconnect us from who we are. And so a part of that healing is getting back in touch with our authentic selves. And I've heard you talk before about um, the importance of bearing witness to, to trauma. Can you say a little bit about what that practice of bearing witness has to do with um, encouraging this, this experience of homecoming, which you're, you're describing? Yeah, so uh, we find that a lot of times trauma survivors don't disclose or don't tell. And the reasons often uh, they are keeping uh, silent or keeping the secret is they have picked up on messages in their family or in their community or in society that people would not be receptive, um, that either they would not be believed or they would not be supported or they would not be protected. And we find this is actually true, you know, that many times when child abuse survivors disclose, for example, sexual abuse, um, on average, the abuse can continue for another year um, because often, um, Adults are hesitant to intervene, especially when they know the person. I think when it's a stranger, people can get a little more uh, fired up and take action. 
uh, when it's a member of the family or someone who is respected in the community, um, then often uh, there is a desire or hope that maybe the child is confused or uh, they misunderstood, or if you just stay away from them, that won't happen. Um, because Judith Herman, who's one of my mentors in trauma psychology, she wrote the book, uh, Trauma Recovery. And uh, in the book, she says, it is easier to side with perpetrators because all they require is our silence. And that is so true. You know, if you just do nothing um, and allow them to operate, whereas to uh, be an advocate or a voice or a protector for those who are being mistreated, um, requires action. And so um, what uh, survivors have often had to do was either uh, figure out how to manage it within themselves or to face the disappointment or frustration um, of victim blaming and shaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that teaches um, us not to trust others and uh, teaches us that the best way to cope is to Uh, decide that it's not a big deal, um, that we are not a big deal, and to have very minimal expectations of people so that you won't be let down. And so um, all of that um, is disconnection. So the, the sacred role of bearing witness is that I'm going to show up for someone um, with belief and with care and with respect and won't try to jump in their story and make it about me or won't try to dissect their story to figure out what they did wrong, um, but to really be able to sit with it. Many people are uncomfortable being um, in the valley, being in um, heavy places with people. And so they give people the message that you just need to fake it, right? In my community, we would often say, fix your face right? Nobody wants you to look miserable, even if you are. And so uh, when you are willing to bear witness is you don't have to fix your face for me. You don't have to pretend for me. You don't have to read from the script that says I'm fine or I'm blessed or any of that. Like you can tell the truth and be like right where you are. No performance required, no mass required. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's what it is to, to bear witness and and hold uh, sacred space for people. I, I have like flashbacks of sermons about faking it until you make it. That was the message yeah. that, that we heard a lot uh, in my right. community growing up. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. And some of that is either, even in, you know, psychology, behavioral psychology, right. you know, just fake it till you make it. The problem is some of us live lives perpetually faking it mm. and never make it. Yeah. Do, do you have a sense that, um, I, I mean, culturally, are, are we becoming more receptive to hearing about experience of trauma and, and validating those experiences? I think there's definitely increased awareness that uh, these experiences happen and um, a greater awareness of the, of the real dynamics. I think as I was um, alluding to before, we had always pretty much been comfortable with stories that involve strangers, right? Of like, because, you know, you could be kidnapped or, you know, watch out or, you know, uh, check your candy at Halloween or, you know, these kinds of things. Um, But uh, there has been increased awareness about um, 
the fact that, you know, the most common offenders or abusers are people that you know, Mm -hmm. and that you can't tell that someone is by looking at them. You know, people say like, oh, that looks like a pedophile. Like, what does a pedophile look like? And usually like the description they'll give you is like someone who looks homeless or disheveled or angry or who looks unstable. And to know that, you know, abusers can be very charismatic and very successful, you know, can have high income and high education. Um, So I think there is a a greater awareness about the the diversity of of ways that trauma can show up. Well, and Herman talks about that too, doesn't she? I mean, there are these moments of sort of awareness um, that that, uh, unfortunately are sometimes temporary, and then we fall back into this amnesia or or cultural like dissociation. Um, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So knowing that, I mean, there are a lot of cultural dimensions to, to trauma, um, you, you, you are a um, huge advocate for cultural competence and cultural mm-hmm. humility uh, among therapists who work with survivors. Why is that so important? Competence, cultural competence and cultural humility. Yeah. Well, one of the things is we have uh, moved more toward uh, the terminology of cultural humility just because with cultural competence, it uh, implies an ending point. And what we found is people would go to like one workshop or read one book and say like, I'm culturally competent, right? Like I'm done, I did it. And you know, that cultural humility is more a posture, uh, an attitude and understanding that it's lifelong learning. You know, there are so many dimensions uh, to culture, so many different aspects. And the reason it is important to me is that uh, our culture, it shapes our identity, it shapes our meaning making, it affects how at risk we are to certain traumas, it affects how people respond to us differently, police officers and judges and lawyers respond differently uh, based on culture, Uh, the media's depiction of uh, victims is very different. When you look at, you know, if you look at the news, you would think only white children are kidnapped because those are the ones who get highlighted. And, um, and usually not only white children, but white girls, you know, they don't usually highlight boys who have been kidnapped or children of color or children with, uh, who are special needs. Um, and so it is integral to uh, embrace the fullness of who people are. And we have um, long moved away from this idea that the goal was to be culture blind and colorblind. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like when people meet me and I'm African-American and if they say, oh, I didn't even notice you were black. It's like, what do you mean by that? Right. It's like that you would have to erase me to not see me. You mean you didn't see me. Right. So um, it is. And what they mean when they say it is I didn't think anything bad. But there is a difference between I don't have a negative association and I cannot see you. I cannot uh, I cannot acknowledge who you are in the room. It's like when I had a client who was using a wheelchair and I asked about how it was to enter the building. And she said, do you know, I've had so many therapists and none of them have ever mentioned my chair. You know, and I think it's this idea we have that to be respectful requires that we do not acknowledge who people are or what they bring or what their context is. And so a part of bearing witness is seeing the fullness of who people are. And I I think one of the ways that um, 
we can get a greater sense of the fullness of who people are is by appreciating intersectionality and, and yeah. how that can help us conceptualize some of these cultural and social um, political dimensions of trauma. Can you describe what that, what that actually means? Mm-hmm. Maybe some examples. Certainly. So uh, Kimberly Crenshaw um, has written about this uh, term intersectionality and it, it's when you hold multiple um, identities that are um, uh, marginalized or oppressed. So it's not just multiple identities, but when you are a member of multiple groups that experience oppression, then your experience um, is unique. So for example, when we talk about gendered racism, that the racism that Asian women and Asian men experience um, can be distinct. The the racism that uh, black women versus black men experience um, can be unique. Uh, you know, what does it mean um, for you, given your um, the multiple layers that people live with? So that's the complexity um, and the nuance, because with none of this, are we saying everyone in this group is having an identical experience um, because we, we show up in, in multiple margins when you are marginalized for multiple aspects of who you are. Um, so it's, it's very... Um, important to consider and to ask um, people about their uh, lived experience. And do those lived experiences of oppression, I mean, in, in your mind, does that qualify as, as trauma? I mean, we can get into arguments about what the definition of trauma is, but what's your, what's your take on mm-hmm. that? So I would say uh, it exposes you to events that can be potentially traumatizing. So, uh, you know, as opposed to everyone is traumatized, um, I wouldn't say that. It's just like, you know, with with other forms of trauma, you can have um, people experience, you know, two different people who live through a war and one person is um, impacted like years later in a way that another one is not. Um, So it it, um, puts you in a place where um, you you could be traumatized by those um, experiences, and it can be a cumulative effect where multiple incidents um, of microaggressions that accumulate over time. You could be the victim of a hate crime. Um, it can be the denial of resource access um, when you are denied uh, places of living and employment, um, food, medical care. Um, related to your identity, uh, when people respond to you, what does it mean when your skin, your very body um, is considered a threat? You know, what does it mean? What is the experience of a 14-year-old boy walking around and when he walks into a place unarmed, people associate him with a threat? So there is um, the psychological impact of that, both in terms of what that person directly experiences and also what we call intergenerational trauma um, or historical trauma. And some people have called ancestral trauma. Um, The group that there's been the most research done about that are descendants of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they look at both um, the uh, physiological imprint of the trauma and how that can be passed down through the generations. Um, But it also... Um, is uh, behavioral 
that it will affect when you have lived through, think about the Armenians with the Armenian genocide, when you have lived through such a threat, it will affect the way you parent your children. Mm. And so then it can, so it can be transmitted um, in behavior. It can be transmitted in words of like caution and fear. It can be transmitted uh, neurologically, um, because we know trauma affects the brain. The beautiful part we do know is that healing can also affect the brain, but that there, there is an impact. Are there unique ways that trauma can impact people who belong to marginalized and oppressed groups? Is it that compound effect that you were, you were speaking about that makes it more, uh, that can make it more uh, detrimental? Yes, it can be um, the uh, distrust um, is because it, it's one thing if I say, "Oh, I distrust people who look like my abuser." That's one thing. But then when you say you have been uh, mistreated and marginalized by so many, um, that can be a huge one. And it's you know what we would even think about as healthy paranoia, right? So healthy paranoia is like when I am distrusting and there is a reason, right? That I do need to be mindful or cautious or careful. Um, the other, another piece of it is along with um, the experience of trauma, often we are uh, culturally, within our culture and outside of our culture told that we have to be super strong, right? Mm -hmm. That people will say like, oh, you're a goddess, right? Black women are goddesses. Well, goddesses don't have emotions uh, don't have needs, right? Don't have vulnerability. And so then you have to present in this uh, super strong way where there is no space for you to really uh, meet. And so then how does the trauma or depression show up? It can show up, um, particularly with women of color, we can see it as irritability. Or, you know, with men of color who are not supposed to ever look vulnerable, it can look like just anger. Right? Like, why are they so angry? And then people will demonize you, pathologize you uh, for being angry or upset, but not, uh, it's really like gaslighting, right? I'm going to uh, traumatize your community and then say something is wrong with your community for having like anger issues. Well, you know, why are so many people angry? Right? What is it that they're upset about? And what do we need to uh, do to address that? And so a lot of people. Um, have a desire for what we would say is they want uh, peace, but not justice, right? They want you to be, and then, you know, that's a reason why we have to even integrate a multicultural perspective with mindfulness, right? Because mm -hmm. with mindfulness, we say, oh, it doesn't matter what's happening on the outside. You just need to have peace. Well, like, isn't that convenient? Yeah, right. <laughs> isn't that convenient? So instead to note um, that, from my where now I can work for transformation, for activism, for change. So some people would talk about uh, contemplative activism, right? That it is uh, rooted in a place, and, and that is much of our social justice work um, has been birthed out of uh, Black faith communities. And so it is having hope, having faith, and having awareness um, of, the, of the crises of the issues that are plaguing our community. And so the need is not only um, a psychological transformation, but much of uh, the chains 
our political, our economic, our social. So that's why people have begun talking about decolonizing psychology. And to decolonize psychology is to uh, acknowledge the contextual issues that are affecting our mental health, mm. um, as opposed to traditional psychology, which would say, if it's not in the room, it doesn't count, right? Or the only thing that matters is how you think about it. And um, that is problematic, and it ignores the reality that we are affected uh, by our environment. Gosh, the example you gave of the problematic um, um, aspect of teaching mindfulness uh, in response to all of these systemic problems is, is really striking. Yes, and that's why some people have, now there are um, multicultural psychologists um, who use mindfulness, and I'm one of them, but there has to be a, a different way that you approach it. So there is a real critique of those who get these like million dollar grants yeah. and go into the city and just teach our children that the solution is for them to stay calm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that's, Adjust to that's a sick system. Not, yes. Yeah. It's incomplete. Well, you mentioned faith communities and a lot of my students are interested in how spirituality and, and trauma intersect. What, what are some of the, the biggest lessons that, that you've learned um, either growing up in, in a faith community or, or as a psychologist um, about this particular aspect of, of identity? Well, I would say uh, it's important for um, students and for clinicians to fully recognize um, that religious faith can be helpful and harmful. And usually I encounter clinicians who are willing to acknowledge one but not the other. Mm -hmm. So either it is people who are very distrusting of religion, and so whenever they encounter a religious person, including a religious client, they will think things like, oh, that person's been brainwashed, or oh, that person like needs to be liberated from judgment or condemna uh, condemnation, all these negative things. And for the client, that may be, you know, the centrality of their identity and the ways in which they have survived. Mm -hmm. And so the, that therapist will miss it um, because of their uh, negative biases. But I will say the other part is true as well, where there are students or clinicians who are immersed in their faith traditions, who see all of the good, um, but are not able to sit with the fact that some people have been very much hurt um, within these institutions and um, will uh, kind of blame and shame or just kind of throw a, a scripture verse at them. Um, and so the, the, the place of balance is to know, you know, religion in the hands of people, and we are the ones who are shaping it, uh, has been shaped for good and for bad. And so to be open to hearing what the experience of the client has been, even if that is different from the experience of the clinician. As it relates to trauma, um, you know, we often think about trauma having effects on our emotions, our cognitions, our behavior. But another area that people have um, started researching and looking at is, are the spiritual effects of trauma. And so some of the spiritual effects can be um, loss of faith, uh, confusion around faith. You know, I had a client who um, was abused and she said, well, I was, told, I was told that God is love, 
that God is everywhere and God is all powerful. So she said, I'm trying to figure out which of those things is not true. You know, now that's something she couldn't say uh, to certain pastors, right? I'm trying to figure out like, is it that God wasn't there or didn't love me or didn't have the power to stop it, right? Mm -hmm. And so as clinicians to be able to create a space where people can grapple with those uh, issues that are often uh, silenced in other places. Um, so for some people, it can disrupt their faith. I will also say for some people, it uh, connects them even more strongly to their faith. Because some mm -hmm. people will say, well, when no one else was there for me, I know that God was there. When no one believed me, I know that God believed me. So um, it can be, uh, it can affect how we think about things. Uh, we can also use uh, religious coping. So uh, going to pastoral counseling, praying, reading scripture, an interesting thing uh, that I found in my research is people who scored higher in PTSD um, uh, uh, reported greater endorsement of religious coping. And so we can look at that in multiple ways. You know, one possibility is that um, the, the, because they are more distressed, they're using their coping strategy more, right? If I'm more distressed, I'm going to use whatever I use more of it. Uh, the other possibility, which is unfortunate, is if people are a part of faith communities that are shaming and blaming and that are actual, actually exacerbating their symptoms. And so as they're engaged in this community, they're feeling worse about themselves. So um, it can be complicated and nuanced, and it's important for us to be a safe space for people to explore that. Well, and I think those um, complexities and nuances, I mean, highlight the, the need for um, psychotherapy counseling that is really tailored to the unique needs of each client. And I think that's why you've been critical of a lot of these treatment approaches that um, really don't consider cultural factors as much as they, as much as they should. Uh, but you've written some about uh, culturally modified and culturally emergent trauma treatments. And yes. you could share some of that with us, what that means. Absolutely. So um, a lot of the, what people would say, empirically su uh, supported interventions um, are often cognitive behavioral therapies. Um, and those are things like um, uh, trauma-focused uh, cognitive behavioral therapy um, or uh, EMDR or uh, mindfulness-based interventions. Um, stress inoculation therapy, cognitive processing therapy. Um, so all of these are uh, interventions that are what we would call manualized. So they are like step-by-step step of what you're supposed to do. Um, and for a number of people, they've been found helpful. But what we often say when people say, are you using evidence-based treatments, is to say evidence-based on who, right? Because sometimes people do a study in the Midwest with college students, which are like the easiest sample they'll be in your study to get like a credit, right? Um, and then they'll say, oh, this is evidence-based. And it's like, well, this population has nothing to do with that population. Or sometimes in these controlled studies, they eliminate people who have like real life issues, meaning you can't be in the study if you're suicidal. You can't be in the study if you're abusing substances. You can't be in the study if you have more than one type of trauma. And then we're like, wow, look, it works, right? <laughs> so... You just eliminated most therapists' caseloads right there. Yes, yes. 
so it's important to you know look at for who and then to say yes you know a number of these interventions um, uh, can be effective and um, we can modify them um, to make them culturally congruent to have to make them connect more um, with the particular client so for example with trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, there, is, there are cultural modifications for using that with uh, Latino trauma survivors. Um, there have even been cultural modifications for using it with Christian clients. Um, I've had uh, doctoral students who have looked at uh, using it with uh, Jewish clients, uh, with African-Americans, with LGBTQ youth. Um, so what you know we you know you take the fundamentals of it and then um, have the flexibility to look at you know what of this makes sense given the the culture and what of it would need to be modified or changed or even left out mm -hmm. so that's when you modify um, an existing treatment um, and then another piece is culturally emergent interventions so those would be interventions that come from the culture meaning that at their inception, they were created for this community as opposed to us being an afterthought, right? So with the modification, we weren't really thinking about you when we designed it, but now we wanna make it fit you. And you know, that can work and that's good. Mm -hmm. um, but then there are those that, uh, that are created by members of the community and that have the community in mind from the very beginning um, of shaping it. So um, one of those would be womanist therapy. And um, I published a book with the American Psychological Association on womanist and maharista psychology. So those would be the psychology of Black and Latina women. Um, and looking at the particular, uh, not only uh, challenges that they face, but strengths. And a strengths-based approach is really important so that um, people are not just looking at communities as those that are in need or those who are at risk or those who are to be pitied, but to recognize that these are cultures that uh, come with cultural resources and strength and wisdom, and how do we utilize that? So, for example, some people, instead of saying we need to decolonize psychology, they will say we need to indigenize psychology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we need to... Uh, be able to um, integrate and celebrate um, the cultural tools that people use to heal um, because it's, uh, it's from a place of arrogance when we assume that psychology is the only pathway to healing or that therapy, you know, is the only, so it's like therapy and when we look at the history of hu human beings on the planet, therapy is very young, right? So it's like, what were people doing before therapy existed? Um, and, and how do we honor those um, strategies and, and integrate those? Which, again, requires um, a, a strong sense of, of humility, right? Yes, absolutely. So with that in mind, I mean, what, what are some steps that any of us students, practicing clinicians, a lot of experience, not much experience, what are some steps that any of us could take to, to maybe enhance our, our cultural humility a bit? Yes. Uh, so one of them, I would say an important one to start with is self-awareness, because often we, we want to learn about the quote-unquote other. And as long as we otherize people, often we 
uh, erase ourselves. Like we say, like, well, I'm, for example, just American, but, but I need to study all these other cultures, but I'm just an American. Well, like now that's already off because then like no one else is a real American, you know, except for white Americans. And so part of it, even people would say like, get ethnic, meaning, you know, for um, white students to even learn more about their ethnic identity. You know, what has the experience been of um, Italian Americans or Jewish Americans or German Americans, right? What is, what is your history and your culture? And, and, and many times um, people weren't raised with uh, an awareness of that. So, um, so it becomes invisible to them. So I would say um, at first exploring uh, your own identity. I remember I was um, brought in to do a diversity training um, at a particular counseling center. And when I got there, uh, the woman who was greeting me said, oh, I hope you're not going to be like the last trainer. And I said, oh, well, you know, what happened? And she said, well, you know, they wanted me to say that I'm white. And I know that sometimes people's face doesn't match their race. So I was thinking, you know, that she's not white and maybe the person misidentified her. So mm -hmm. I said, oh, you know, well, what are you? And she goes, well, I don't think in terms like that. Right? So that's already going to be problematic <laughs> to say, I'm sitting here without an identity, but I want to study yours. Right. Um, and so we, we have to uh, start with um, a self-awareness and to know, and I would say even for, for clinicians of color, students of color, um, because in my own training, I really was not prepared um, for the racism or the microaggressions that I would receive from clients. Um, mm -hmm. Because a lot of my coursework, you know, the, the minimal coursework we had on multicultural issues really was um, directed at, focused on preparing white students to work with people of color. Like that's what the textbook was. That's what the lectures were. And right. so it had not even really occurred to me what it was going to be like when I go out into the waiting room at my internship um, to address a white client who has never really had a conversation with a black person and are now being put in this tiny room because of course interns get the smallest offices yep. put in this tiny room and told to like tell their life secrets to like someone who they have all kinds of uh, stereotypes and misconceptions and biases about. Um, and so um, I discovered that very quickly that I am not a blank slate sitting here just because I am not, I am here to help you does not erase um, our histories, right? And the ways that people are encountering me. Um, and so uh, starting with self-awareness, and then I would say it's really important um, to diversify your friendship circle and your network. Because if the only people from a culture you encounter are them as your clients, you will have a very narrow view of what that community is because the only time you ever see them is when they're in quote unquote need from you. Right. Um, and so that that's not a full picture. Yeah. Um, and uh, then it is uh, about us being able to um, acknowledge um, our privileges. And I know that, you know, is hard for any person because everyone wants to believe that like everything I got, I worked for and nothing is handed to me and that that's fake or whatever. Sure. <laughs> but the reality is 
Um, each of us come with, you know, um, different privileges that things, we, they, they, those are unearned assets, right? So um, I went to Liberia during high school, although I'm African-American. And when a civil war broke out, I was allowed to be evacuated because I'm an American. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't have to take that test. I didn't fight to be an American. Like that, I, I got access really to life. Uh, because of that passport and my citizenship. And I have, I have to own that, right? There are people who were not saved, who were not rescued, and it is nothing about their worth or mine, right? No. Um, and so it's not for us to then just be stuck in a place of guilt or shame, but it does come with a level of responsibility um, because that's, you know, what it means then uh, to be an ally is that, uh, each of us will be in places where we have the opportunity uh, to be a voice and not only to be a voice, quote unquote, for the voiceless, but to create space for other people to speak. I heard someone say, mm-hmm. instead of being a voice for the voiceless, why don't you pass the mic? <laughs> and I think that's, that's fantastic, right? It's like, no, I'm, I'm not speaking. Instead of speaking for the silenced, let's let, let's let the silenced speak. Um, and so those are some of the key things that we can do. That might be the uh, title of this episode, Pass the Mic. Ah, I like I it. That. I love it. We might, I think we got it right there. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we, as we wrap up here, we only have a few minutes left. But um, since you did write the book on thriving in the aftermath of trauma, uh, I, I wonder if you could maybe say something about the difference between just surviving a traumatic yes. experience versus thriving in the aftermath yes. one. Absolutely. Uh, so important that as your uh, students are doing this work, that they know uh, for therapy not to end at the point of symptom cessation, right? So if my only goal is Um, I want the depression to go down. I want the PTSD to go down. I want the cutting to go down. I want the substance dependence to go down. And okay, now we're finished. Well, it's like now we're just getting started Uh, because uh, people's lives have been derailed by the trauma, but um, there is more to them than that. And the reality is you can have someone who's no longer cutting, but still has no joy. Mm -hmm. You know, you can have someone who's no longer um, suicidal, but don't, doesn't have a sense of real purpose, um, does not have a sense of self-worth. And so um, surviving is, is making it. And that's important. Uh, Dr. Maya Angelou, uh, incredible poet, wrote the words, uh, surviving is necessary, but thriving is elegant. And I just love that because it's true. It's, it's, you know, I celebrate people making it, making it another day, making it another week. Um, but we are on the planet for so much more than that. And so whether we think about that as post-traumatic growth, whether we think about it as positive psychology, whether we think about it as spiritual values, um, but uh, getting get thriving is about being everything that I am, being my authentic self, utilizing my gifts, having a sense of joy, purpose, and connection with others. Uh, fulfillment, right? Having fulfillment in my living, uh, that is thriving. And so we want to uh, 
make that a part of the treatment goals, not just uh, symptom abatement. Mm -hmm. Well, last, uh, and I, I really appreciate uh, your time and just your, your, your generosity. Um, so in closing, uh, I know that you talked at the very beginning uh, that the work is difficult, but it's also so, so inspiring. Um, what is it to you that, that keeps you hopeful, that sustains you uh, in this work, that gets you out of bed and into the office every day? I, I love doing this work, and what gives me hope uh, is people. You know, we are, we are remarkable. And when I see um, people that, uh, according to any statistics, like really shouldn't be here or should be in a corner somewhere, you know, in an alleyway somewhere, strung out, hospitalized somewhere, you know, and they are trying to make a life, to build a life. Um, it is um, such an honor and an inspiration. Um, and when you have seen that journey work when you have seen that that journey is really possible it makes the challenging aspects um, more sustainable because um, when people come in to see you they are wondering can it get any better than this you know and if we don't have an answer to that question from a real place um, then we're just going to all be in despair. Then it will be depressing work. But because I know not only what I have seen, so it's not just what I have read in a book, I know in terms of bearing witness with clients, but then also I know from myself, right, that healing is possible, restoration is possible. And when I say that, it's not in this um, surface way of like, then like you'll never cry again or you'll never be upset again, but that you can have like, uh, a fulfilling, joyful, healthy life um, that is not perfect, but is beautiful. And I know that because I've lived it. Dr. Tama, thank you so much. How, how can listeners uh, keep up with you? Um, any resources that, yeah. you, that you want to share? Um, love Absolutely. To. Thank you. So my website is Dr. Tama, which is spelled D-R-T-H. E-M-A, drtama.com. And on Instagram, I'm Dr. Dr. Period Tama. On Twitter, Dr. Tama without the period. Um, I, and I started my podcast last July. Uh, it's called The Homecoming Podcast, and it's on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, Spotify, and YouTube. Um, and a new episode is released every Sunday. And we're now up to maybe like 25. So I would love for you to join that uh, journey with us, the homecoming journey. Um, and as I said, I have the book Thriving in the Wake of Trauma, Womanist and Maharista Psychology, and the cheapest resource, I have an ebook uh, called Tweets for the Soul that you can get on Amazon. Um, it's like $5 and you would immediately get it in your email box. So um, I would love for you uh, to connect uh, online or through those resources. Great. Well, I'll be sure to share links to, to all of those. So, uh, oh, thank uh, you. Again, thank you so much. I'm grateful to you and, and for your work and I uh, really appreciate this conversation. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I love the questions. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. 
This first season of the podcast is supported by the Sawyer Digital Proficiencies Initiative at Messiah College. If you want to learn more about Messiah, you can visit us online at messiah.edu. Thanks for listening. Class dismissed.